Armenia and Azerbaijan reject international calls for peace amid continued violence. The leader of Hezbollah demands that France stops with its patronizing attitude. The Catalonian separatist leader is forced to step down by the Spanish government for 18 months, and three ministers of the Bolivian government resign right before the election. This is the world at large, and we are Politics 1001. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the world at large, where we cover news from all corners of the globe. If you enjoy, please remember to share, leave a review, and of course, click that subscribe button. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of our podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the world at large. Today, we have a very special episode because we are talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan. Hmm. Some tough situations going on over there. So, Josh, why don't you tell us all about that? It is, in fact, a tough situation. In fact, Armenia and Azerbaijan have never had the nicest relationship. And let's be frank for a minute. Armenia and Azerbaijan have, well, been in pretty much a state of aggression since they've declared independence from the Soviet Union. But let's go back in time a little bit. Let's let's debrief. Why Why are they fighting? So, in 1988, Armenia and Azerbaijan, they became independent states. Soviet Union, you are gone. You need to stop ruling over us. We're done with you, Russia. We are our own independent states. We are not clients of you anymore. We're leaving the Union. And so they left, right? However, because of leaving a Soviet Union leaves a power gap, they each decided that they wanted their own specific territories. And Armenia and Azerbaijan were fine for the most part. Like the Azerbaijanis lived here, the Turkish people, and then you have the the Christian Armenians over here, you know, Muslims on the other side. So it all works out, except for Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh is this little zone inside of Azerbaijan. It's recognized today by both Armenia and Azerbaijan as Azerbaijani territory. However, it's Armenian majority. And so during a war, well, so what happened is Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war immediately over well, territorial claims in right after they left the Soviet Union. And they immediately... Um, Started, they, they started to fight, but Armenia ended up winning. And so there's a few reasons as to why they win, which I'll get into in a minute. But what happened was this region of Nagorno-Karabakh, which was originally a autonomous zone within Azerbaijan, ended up being, that's right, you guessed it, its own state. So this state, it's not recognized by the United Nations. It's more of like uh, Rojava in Syria, where it has its own military. But, and it's like, the, it's like the Kurdish state in Syria. But it's not recognized by anyone, including Armenia. And so... Yeah, they, Armenia ended up winning this war, and that was mainly because of the corruption in the Azerbaijani government. They had just taken power, and they were more intent on um, holding on to that power than actually winning the war with Armenia. That they had, you know, they had supplies from Turkey, but they still managed to win the war. They still managed to lose the war because the government would not t- send the main army from Baku to the front lines to fight the Armenians because they were so busy about clinging on to power. Um, so they were fine with the ceasefire as long as we get to rule Azerbaijan after. So. Both Armenia and Azerbaijan have rejected international calls for talks and negotiations regarding the now four days of fighting in which hundreds of people have been injured. So, that is not a good thing, right? We do not want to see people fighting. The United Nations does not want to see people fighting because, well, if people are fighting, then the United Nations, well, what's its purpose, right? It's to establish a world order of peace. So, that's obviously where they try to come in. The Security Council has called for peace talks in Russia, uh, which is a close ally of Armenia because it's a Christian country, close ally of Armenia, but also they like to export uh, export goods to our, Azerbaijan because oil, and they have tried to say that we look, man, we're going to we'll, let's just all sit down and talk this out. We don't need to kill each other. 
It's not necessary. This war, it's not needed. You're just going to end up all dying and ruining your economies. So why don't I negotiate? And Armenia said, no, we're not going to do that. And Azerbaijan pretty quickly followed. And why did Armenia say no originally? Well, that is because they're saying, we are not going to negotiate if there's an Azerbaijani army trying to assault us. You think we're just going to sit around? Yeah, let's all go to Moscow. Let's have some tea and talk about solving this war while the Azerbaijani is, army is literally advancing into our territory. No, 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 no. We're going to go slowly, slow and steady, you know? And so that is kind of the perspective of Armenia. And so Armenia, Armenian officials in the country's capital of Yerevan have accused Turkey, because Turkey got to get involved in every country around them. Um, Turkey has decided that, well, so Armenia is saying that Turkey is provoking violence in the region. Turkey and Azerbaijan, of course, deny this, but the Armenian story is that a warplane of theirs was shot down within um, Armenian airspace, um, which, if that is true, then that is a violation of international law. Um, but like I said, this was denied by Turkey and Azerbaijan. So again, Russia has offered to help, but it seems like that's not going to be happening. And if Turkey is be- Turkey has begun to export um, guns and and mortars and ammunition to Azerbaijan, and furthermore, they also told 4,000 Syrian rebel rebel soldiers to advance north and uh, supply the Azerbaijani army, which led to Syria saying that Turkey is the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the Middle East, which is, you don't want that label. It's not a good label. Um, And so Syria told Turkey that they are the biggest sponsor of terror because rebel Syrian soldiers went north to Azerbaijan. So a little bit of confusing geopolitics there, but that's kind of what's going on. And so... Yeah, that, that, that's what you're seeing. And so the Armenian prime minister, um, Nikol Pashinyan, he explained, he explained his logic specifically about, you know, the Azerbaijani is being a little bit aggressive. He said specifically, and quote, It isn't very appropriate to speak of a summit between Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Russia at a time of intensive hostilities. A suitable atmosphere and conditions are needed for negotiations. So in calls for peace, Azerbaijani president Ilkab Aliyev said this in response, quote, the Armenian Prime Minister publicly declares that Karabakh is a part of Armenia, period. In this case, what kind of negotiation process are we talking about? So, yes, Nagorno-Karabakh is technically a part of Azerbaijan. It is recognized by every country in the world as a part of Azerbaijan, again, including Armenia. So, but of course, since Armenia ended up winning that war, this country, well, this region managed to not only claim Nagorno-Karabakh, but seven districts around it, creating a little bit of a mini mini zone for Armenian majority people within Azerbaijan. Um, and so what Aliyev is referring to in the statement is that because he, he sees accusing the Armenian prime minister of wanting to integrate Karabakh into greater Armenia. And so he's referring to the statement that the prime minister made in 2019, which he said specifically, quote, Artkak is Armenia and that's it, end quote. So he's referring to that. He's like, look at what he said in 2019. Are you kidding me? You think I'm just going to let that go? I know your plans. I know you want to integrate this zone in not only your Armenian part, but the six, the seven other districts around it as well. I know what you're doing, Armenia, and I'm not going to allow it. So the problem here for Armenia is that they are a little bit outnumbered, right? They don't even they have about 2.9 million citizens. Azerbaijan has around 8 million. They're also receiving Turkish arms, Turkish exports, and Syrian soldiers, well, rebel Syrian soldiers. So with that in mind, Armenia is not a very big advantage. Not a very big advantage in this war. So it would be in their best interest to negotiate a peace as fast as possible. However, again, they are saying that they do not want to because of violence and they do not appreciate that. Uh, So they made it clear that they will go to peace talks when Azerbaijan 
backs off a little bit. But again, Azerbaijan is saying, this is our zone. This is our zone. This is our right. This is our land. You have no right to occupy it. Karabakh is not yours, Armenia. It is ours. So we are going to continue to fight for it, fight for our people, and fight for our country. And so that is what's going on in Azerbaijan and Armenia. And it's good to get the updates. Yeah, thank you for enlightening me. Yeah, so let's move over to France and Lebanon. Because, of course, Ian, if you didn't know, there was an explosion in Beirut a few weeks back. It was the top headline for a while, but it's, mm-hmm. it's simmered down a little bit. But the people of Lebanon have not have are still feeling the, the brunt of that explosion. So there have been protests around Lebanon um, against the government. You see government ministers resigning. And more specifically against the the militant group of Hezbollah, which operates in southern Lebanon. They kind of act as freedom fighters against the Israeli oppression, as they put it, um, and kind of just protecting the Lebanese people. And so Hasran, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, has made it clear that he welcomes the offer of help from France amid the Lebanese economic crisis. But he says that France needs to stop using patronizing behavior. So what does patronizing mean? This means that you're kind of treating them like children. Like France's dad and or the mom and well Beirut's just just a little nine year old kid. Josh to Ian. Yeah. And so <laughs> Lebanon doesn't want to be told what to do. Well more specifically, Hezbollah does not want to be told what to do by Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. And why is this? Because Hezbollah has a lot of power right now. They have the majority in parliament. They have a lot of influence over the country militarily because they're backed by Iran. So Hezbollah, they're, they're living pretty large right now in Lebanon. They're doing pretty well. Um, however, among the Lebanese people, polls showed that they want that, like they want more French help. They want French aid. They want French support. And Macron has said that unless uh, Lebanon gets its act together and appoints new ministers and actually delivers through on promises to the people, sanctions will be placed on Lebanon if they do not. Because, well... Macron's taking a hard line stance. He's kind of placing a bet here, right? Like if it, it, right now we've been so nice to them and they've been corrupt. There's so much corruption for the past 20 years. But if we do a hard stance, maybe that will fix the problem. But it's a bargain, right? I mean, if it doesn't end up working anyways and sanctions on Lebanon, that's going to be even more devastating. I mean, that kind of sounds like the last ultimatum I've ever gotten. I was threatened to get put sanctions on if I don't fix my behavior. And Ian's a well-behaved man, so I guess it would work, maybe. Yeah, we, um, we stayed together. Josh didn't put sanctions on me. Yeah, exactly, guys. So put sanctions on your friends if they disrespect you. So friend, so again, Emmanuel Macron has expressed his disapproval of the Lebanese government in failing to form a government amid a time when so many of the country's citizens are struggling financially. To reiterate, um, since the 1980s, Lebanon has had the worst economic crisis. Well, again, since that time. They, they, they did it pretty well in the 90s, decent 2000. Then there were a few wars. They just went downhill. Inflation explosion in Beirut. It's it, it, All of that leads to a not very prosperous Lebanon. And so Macron, again, is referring to the politicians specifically. Um, and he went on in his speech to emphasize Hezbollah. And he and he said that Hezbollah has betrayed the people of Lebanon. So in a statement, Nasrallah, leader of Hezbollah, again, was angry, saying, oh, you dare say I betrayed them. Well, you know what? Don't take my word for it. Let's listen to what Nasrallah has to say. End quote. Who says it's a betrayal? We welcome President Macron. When he visited Lebanon, we welcome the French initiative, but not for him to be judge, jury, and executioner and ruler of Lebanon. So Hezbollah argues that because they hold a majority of the seats in the Lebanese parliament, they should not be sidelined. They will not be put aside while the French go and they just do the little thing and the little imperialism thing. Hezbollah does not like that. They think they think that France is getting a little bit imperialist and, as I said earlier, patronizing. Mm-hmm. So, But 
looking at the Lebanese citizens, they actually welcome this support. In fact, there's a petition going around in Lebanon with thousands of signatures. I believe it's almost, I, I don't want to be exact, but it was like 40% of the Lebanese population, it was really big, said mm-hmm. that Lebanon should become a territory of France again to get them out wow. of the economic depression, which is a lot of people. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of people. However, it doesn't seem like that's actually going to happen. I don't know if that's if France wants that to happen because that'd be a really expensive gift. So. I wonder if there's similar petitions in America for England. Hmm, probably not. Yeah, probably I bet, not. I bet there's petitions in England to become part of America. I, again, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways... Lebanon has struggled to form a government with the interim prime minister. So this is interim, right? This means the guy that's kind of there while they don't have a prime minister. Some guy just resigned after the explosion. They're trying to find a new one. So this guy is in the middle. The interim, the the temporary prime minister resigned three days ago because he himself cannot form a government. So, oh my God, the temporary. Now we need a, we need a temporary for the temporary. What do then? <laughs> exactly. I don't expect it to go this far. And so this is prompted concern from the EU because the EU wants a prosperous Lebanon. They want a strong, beautiful Lebanese people because Beirut's a beautiful city and Tripoli's a beautiful city. I want to go visit them. And so this concern from the EU was prompted in the form of this quote that I'm about to say. <laughs> so, end quote. The European Union notes with disappointment and concern the resignation of Prime Minister-designate Mustafa Adib and the circumstances that led to his decision. Mustafa Adib is again that interim Prime Minister. And so Joseph Borrell, a top diplomat from the EU, has said that Lebanon cannot access the, uh, the International Monetary Fund, which gives out loans to um, struggling countries economically. He said that they cannot, Lebanon cannot access the IMF without a stable government, um, which is why he's concerned that Lebanon will never escape their economic crisis, crisis if they cannot appoint a government. If you don't have a government, how are you going to take out loans from the IMF? This is how the rules work. And so, you know, if the government keeps resigning every three months, and nothing's going to get done, man. I imagine it wouldn't. So Borrell is just really, he's just piling these this, this, this facts on top of Lebanese people. Like, guys, got to get your act together. Destroying them with facts and sanctions. Yeah. Well, not yet. I don't believe Borrell. That doesn't sound like a French name. Anyways. Well, I don't know. Um, anyways, we're going to move on now. Because because I wish my full-hearted luck to Lebanon. I hope they get out of their economic crisis. But in the meantime, while we're talking about economic crises, why don't we go over to Catalonia? Because a decision has been made by a top court in Spain to uphold a ban on the Catalonian separatist leader, Kim Toro, and keep him out of politics. So, does this sound constitutional to you, Ian? Just banning someone? You know... Using my expertise on the Spanish Constitution, I would determine, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, uh, I didn't know either, so I had to read into it a little bit. And um, ahead of last year's general, well, this is what I found. Ahead of last year's general election, Torah put up a pro-independent symbol on a government building, and the Spanish government demanded that he take it down, which he ended up refusing. So, again, Catalan is this little group, it, it's this little massive majority, minority group inside of eastern Spain, centered around the sa- famous city of Barcelona, um, and they just, they want independence here. They have our own language, our own culture, uh, we are the wealthiest part of Spain, so why should we continue to prop up the Spanish economy? Why don't we just go off on our own to be our own, our own little Dubai? And so, the, <laughs> or what's a, what's, what's a better example? What's that little country below France? Monaco. They want to be like Monaco, except bigger, way bigger. But anyways, um, they're the wealthy part of Spain. They want independence. The Catalan independence movement is one of the most famous independence movements in the world. And so 
Tora put up an independence flag for Catalan, waving it on a government building, a federal building, and Spain again said, you can't do that. You're, you're part of Spain, my friend. My, my friend Tora, you can't do that. Just take it down and we can move on with our lives. And Tora said, no. This is, this is Catalan. I am the Catalan separatist movement leader, and I will do as I want. And so the Spanish court said, okay, well, that's unconstitutional. You cannot wave um, flags that are threatening to tear apart our country on government buildings that are funded by Spanish taxpayer money. And so, hence, he was punished for 18 months. So this ban has not gone into effect yet. But upon going into effect, again, 18 months, so that's a year and a half, that he will not be allowed to serve in politics. So there are a few people that are being um, thought of for to replace him in the meantime. Well, he's not in politics for 18 months. But he still is right now. And we don't know when, he's gonna, when it's going to go into effect again. But when it does, that is a big deal. So... This is actually called for protests. And, well, protests have been called for in the city of Barcelona, the capital of Catalonia, and to spring up because people are angry. He is allowed to wave an opposition flag. You have the Gaul Spain to say he cannot wave an opposition flag. <laughs> Just one more reason to be independent. One more reason to be independent. You hear that, Spain? So, yeah. That, I mean, <laughs> this this said mixed reactions from the international community should people be allowed to wave those flags on government property i mean this is also a problem in the united states should you be able to wave confederate flags in, in on government property very split here also so um this is not this is not something that's just going on in spain but the fact that an opposition leader literally got kicked out of politics for 18 months is certainly a, a large story and something to consider form your own opinion on that while you're forming that opinion we'll talk about starvation in, in somalia oh, so. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is very serious. Okay. Um, <laughs> shut up, Ian. And so uh, there is news report released by the United Nations up to, that up to what 2.1 million people in Somalia could face food shortages. So if you guys remember a few months ago, maybe maybe even half a year ago at this point, there was food shortages in Somalia through locusts. I can't remember how long ago that was. but That was like at the beginning of quarantine. Yeah, it was a while ago. And so locusts swarmed, uh, swarmed in Somalia, and they were, this, cause again, it's on the Horn of Africa. These locusts affect the Horn of Africa, the Middle East, and India, and they just tore up all the crops, because that's what locusts do best. I mean, you, you look at, in, in, from, from the biblical perspective, the, the locusts tearing up the, the crops and the plagues of Egypt to, for the Jewish people to run away to Canaan. But, the, yeah, locusts are really not not helpful they, they eat up all the crops they, they consume a lot like it's it's really massive like minutes they can clear an entire field it's pretty serious so this caused a lot of food shortages but now according to again this new un report at the end well by the end of 2020 as many as 2.1 million people in somalia could be facing these food shortages so specifically this quote was released by the united nations from October to December, food insecurity is expected to deteriorate among poor households with limited livestock or low capacity to cope with harvest losses. In addition, 849,900 children under the age of five are less likely are less are less are likely to be acutely malnourished through August 2021. So, 849,000 people are going to be or children are going to be acutely by malnourished and that is just under the age of five so i mean if you look at that specifically you can really tell about how the youth in the country is struggling a lot more than than the older people I, you do see this you do see i mean most countries you do see that the wealthy tend to be a little bit old more wealthy than the young but um almost so i mean you can round this up to almost a million people are going to be having food shortages so that's not good 
That's not good. And the UN is blaming this on climate change. They're saying that there's high temperatures in Somalia and that's caused by climate change and that's causing a little bit of droughts to go on around the country. So is that... And this is a little bit disputed, obviously, among, among the international community. Is it climate change or is it just really hot there? Is it Do the locusts kind of push this forward? Who knows? Um, there's a few different ways to kind of look at this. But the world getting hotter and record high temperatures in Somalia is certainly one of the reasons that you know, there are droughts. And so, I'm, I mean, I, I really hope people do not starve to death in Somalia. But it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Um, so let's talk about a little bit of a lighter subject, uh, which is the election in Bolivia. So oh, the AP guys so happy. Yay. And so, guys. If you didn't know, there is an election in Bolivia coming up on October 18th in which three ministers... Well, okay, so there's so three ministers have resigned for seemingly no reason. We'll get to that in a second. But this the reason this is so important is because there is an election on October 18th in Bolivia. Um, and so the current president of Bolivia is... She is not going to be there. She's more of interim, again. Because you guys remember last year, the president of Bolivia fled to Mexico... Um, it was exiled, and then he fled to Argentina. He's the Socialist Party leader, I believe, um, which we'll get back to in a minute why that's important. But he he fled the country, and so this lady took over. She took over, and until October 18th, she will be in charge. And so she has a lot of ministers, obviously, and three of them just resigned. And again, this was for seemingly no reason. However, one of them, the economic minister, well, the former one at least, Oscar Ortiz, came out and saying that, that a new person was already appointed. He felt he was already going to be fired. So what's the point in me staying on? However, for the other two, the ministers of production and labor to be specific, they also resigned and they would not go public as to why. So why are these ministers resigning? Why three in such a short period of time? Very we'll suspicious. Solve it here. So why did Ortiz? So why did Ortiz feel like he was going to be replaced? Though that's a good question. We should be diving into. So he said that the Bolivian government was going to give back previously owned shares back to a private shareholder, but back to a bunch of private shareholders for a state-owned electricity company. He said he was not uh, comfortable agreeing with this from a legal perspective and openly opposed it. Specifically, he said this. I am not ready to sign just any decree that goes against the legal system or does not have sufficient legal support. Um, so Ortiz... So the... The opposition leader before, the one that fled to Mexico and then now he's currently residing in Argentina, he has he is the one that originally nationalized the electricity company. Um, and he said that giving it back to private shareholders could put the people, the lower class of Bolivia at stake again. And so he's he, he's still actually very relevant in leftist Bolivian politics, <laughs> if you were interested. <laughs> I was. <clears throat> yeah, because because a lot of people well, he wasn't he is unpopular, but he was not that unpopular. He's very popular among the Socialist Party. And he's saying, look, you can't just hand out these shareholders to people. People rely on this electricity. If you if you do, if do, it's not state-owned, then it could just go out at any time. And so Ortiz has already been replaced, although it will not last a long time since, again, a new president is about to be appointed on October 18th. Oh, so go out there and vote, all our Bolivian friends. Yes, go out there and vote, my Bolivian friends. And if you are in another country that is also voting, you should definitely consider yes. doing it as well. But while you're also submitting ballots, um, you should also, well, maybe subscribe to this podcast. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, while you're in the waiting line to vote, you want to subscribe to this podcast. That's a great time to do it. Ah. And while you're doing that, you should put in five stars and Mm. then go to the person behind you and say, look, I just gave this podcast five stars. Mm -hmm. And they'll they'll appreciate it. Shut up or they'll appreciate it. (laughs) 
more or 99% of the time they'll appreciate yes. it. Uh, but you also want to leave a review on there because the paragraph is, of course, very important. It makes Ian happy. And if you guys are tuning in for the first time and you made it this far into the podcast, then we thank you for coming and we hope that you come back next time because, you know, your support means everything to us. Mm-hmm. So with that, we're going to be wrapping up. Um, we are Politics 1001 and this is the world at large. Have a good day.